Hello and welcome to Darker Days number 25. On this episode, we interview Sam Chupp, one of the original writers of the World of Darkness. Sam was an outstanding guest and he was on the ball. He remembered like everything, every kind of question we asked him, and uh, even ones he might not have been prepared for. So, outstanding guest. And <laughs> we really got to thank him because... We, we uh, said this interview was only to take about 50 minutes or so, and we ended up talking for 90 minutes total. So it's pretty extensive uh, overview of the work he's done and work he's doing now, and we'd really like to thank him. Uh, we're going to save the uh, White Wolf news and secret frequency for next episode, and we're just going to jump into this excellent interview. So let's listen to a quick promo from the Knights of the Night podcast, and then... Go on to the interview. Knights of the Night Podcast at KOTOnPodcast.com. This is chapter 17. What? What? Did I say 17? Yeah. I am on block. Take two. <laughs> and the greed lights up in Michael's eyes. <laughs> you are an artifact. Well, don't say it like that. I, I paid for that coin with blood. A drop of blood. Let's Didn't let's... see you pushing to the front of the line, my friend. <laughs> no means no, woman. <laughs> One of my flaws is that I'm a beacon for spiritual energy. Whoa. What? 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 Nothing's beyond my medical skill. What? I don't have to rely on QB Dow's butter knives. Said the guy who injects drugs into his eyeballs. What? What? Needle in the eye, baby. What? Edited for cleverness. What? KOTNpodcast.com. Come join the fun. Good evening, everyone. This is Mike here. I'm joined by Mark and also an author steeped in mystery. The man, the myth, the urban legend, Sam Chupp. How are you, Sam? Hey there. Wow, that's an incredible introduction. Thank you. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks. If I could just share something, I I stumbled onto a special thanks in the uh, A World of Darkness source book from 1992. Mm -hmm. And it says, special thanks to Sam Chupp, triple agent, for being the only corporate spy in the gaming industry. Sorry for breaking your cover. (laughs) <laughs> so that was just a uh, random goofy aside that I found and uh, just felt I could share that real quick yeah I mean if you'd like I'll tell you a little bit about how all those special things are created sure, um, sure. basically what happens is at the end of a book when you are completely tired of the 64, 98, 128 240 360 pages that you just laid out and, and messed with that you just edited, you developed, whatever you would, however you messed around with the book, you get to a point where you uh, kind of go crazy a little. So, you know, usually what happened with those special things is that somebody would would be laying out the book and be in the final stages just before we go to print, and somebody will say, "Oh my God, we didn't do special things. We got to do it right now." And so people would walk around and, you know, uh, gosh, do you have any special things for? Uh, uh, the Bonar Tribe book, or whatever. So when we did that, people would just come up thing with with little end jokes, little asides, little small uh, things that would essentially make sense to the people on, uh, on the staff at that time. And 
be completely, you know, you couldn't possibly even understand it from the outside. But that's just one of the little things that we did is just really self-serving, is, to be honest. It was just like, <laughs> this is our little, you know, our little mark on the on the book that is just for us. And so, but there were a lot of people who tried to guess what them, they meant. And um, there were some threads, there were some in-jokes and some puns and some you know, little things like one of them, uh, one of the early ones I was in uh, ref- referred to the time I went out with the White Wolf crew on a Halloween club run and I dressed up as Dr. Evil, the crime doctor. Um, and <laughs> we were all into um, pulp style way back then anyway. Before This was before any kind of pulp style games came out. And so we, I was Doctor Evil, and somebody else was a was the Mask of Midnight, and you know so on and so forth. But we had a great time doing that, and and one of the uh, special things talks about that. Um, so yeah, cool. I think it's fun that it's the last thing that you do on the book, but as readers, it's the first thing that we come to when we open the open the cover. Absolutely, uh, it's always fun to kind of try and puzzle out what those are about, and uh, you know, without every so hope often, hell, yeah, every so often we'd have a game designer or a writer sort of like send us their special things to put in and you know it was kind of like yeah yeah if they're funny we'll do it but um it was really just more for the people who are working on who are actually finishing putting together the book so the editors the developers the layout people um the art people they got to sort of put their their words in a little stamp on it at the end Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nice well, as people have probably figured out, Sam was one of the original guys at White Wolf. Sam, you you came on board as a layout person, if I uh, remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes, what I did is uh, I was I I responded to an internet a Usenet ad that Mark put out on Usenet saying, "Hey, we're looking for a layout artist." I had been doing layout for quite so many years at that point in time. For those who don't know by Mark, you mean, of course, Mark Reinhagen. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. exactly. Rein.hagen, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's Mark, yeah. Mark is actually in uh, former Soviet Georgia now. Uh, um, Tbilisi or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, yeah, so he called. and I, mean, I called him and he said, well, why don't you come up for a weekend and let's do an audition. And I said, okay. And the audition was lay out this book we have to we have to have to the printer you know next week. Oh, oh my god! Nice. <laughs> so I sat down and I laid out Blood Bond, which was a little uh, eight page, sixteen page, uh, almost a module uh, for Vampire that was to be added to sales of Vampire the Sec- Masquerade Second Edition. I mean, I'm sorry. First, the first edition was, it was the third, second or third printing of the first edition. So yeah, I got on pretty early, not as early as Lisa Stevens and Jonathan Tweet, you know, was who was in there from the, in the beginning, and Stuart Wick who was in there from the beginning. But I was not far after that. So at this point, it's still it's a real small, uh, uh, small company. Still, I, I take it. We were living in a house. We were all working in a in a house. Uh, a suburban house and and the truck for the books would come and pull up a big semi truck and then we would all go out we'd drop whatever we were doing and we'd go out and make a um, bucket brigade style loading of the uh, crates from the back of the truck um, 
all the way up into the garage of that particular house, and that was that was uh, Wes Harris's garage. His wow. that was his entire warehouse for a period. So usually, though, that we did drop ships from the printer directly to the distributors, and that's why we were able to do that kind of thing. Yeah, huh. have that small house, but we moved from house to a uh, office warehouse complex around the same time we started working on Werewolf. Okay, right, right. So, and yeah. and you were with White Wolf for how long in, in the end? I was with them for three years, I think. Yeah, three about three years. Okay, and then okay. did you continue to freelance after that? I did. I, I worked with them off and on freelance for a while. Um, I have not worked with them post-CCP, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It's not that I wouldn't. I mean, I would be more than happy to work with them. It's just they they got their irons in their fire in a big way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yep. All right, Sam, just to uh, take a step back, rewind a bit, uh, mm-hmm. how did you originally get started with gaming and uh, on all that? I went over to a guy's house uh, when I was eight, and he had he said, I'm going to run D- advanced Dungeons & Dragons for you, and I wanted desperately to be a wizard character, like my favorite character from the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, at that time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, of course, uh, I mean, and, and we, I, I tried to, you know, do something the rules didn't really cover in the game by throwing a dagger, and he couldn't, he didn't really understand the rules enough to tell me how how I threw daggers, and um, <laughs> he kind of just really didn't understand the game very much, and he just got bored because he was, everything bogged, bogged down in, in a combat scene. And so he said, look, you know, I'm tired of doing this. We can do something else. And I said, well, what if I ran the game? And he said, well, how could you do that? You've never played before. This is your first day. I'm like, I can come up with something. So I did. And I ran my, <laughs> I ran the first game I ever played by just totally creating it up out of the blue, just out of the, just completely out of the blue, pulling it out of thin air. And so uh, after that, I was hooked. Excellent. Yeah, well, free form from the word go. That's outstanding. Absolutely. Great. And had you had you um, ex- any experience of Vampire the Masquerade uh, before you uh, joined White Wolf? Or was it, was it too early yeah. on for you to have been exposed to it yet? No, I, I did, actually. What, what was going on with that is that I was a huge Lion Rampant fan. Mm, yeah. um, Lion Rampant was before White Wolf, and I loved Ars Magica. Yeah. The second... Uh, I, I got... I, I was able to pick up second edition Ars Magica, and I was able to pick up um, some of their supplements. And they had um, various story path de- decks that I got, and you know. And then I, I, the, I was at the gaming store, and they were like, um, "Got this new game, Vampire the Masquerade," and I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll buy that and see it, see what it's like." And so I tried. I, I actually tried to play it with my D and D group, and it ended up being kind of D&D with fangs um, but I really appreciated like the story the story uh, aspects the, the encouragement towards telling stories that was you know part of the game and I tried to get my, my uh, players at that time to really get into the whole embrace and you know the, I, I ran preludes for each of them and so on and so forth and it was a lot of fun but um I that was that was about it before I actually went to White Wolf. Then after I went to White Wolf, uh, nobody wanted to play. 
<laughs> because when you do it all day long and you and you work your butt off trying to get these books out the door, the last thing you really want to do is sit down and, and mess with them some more. Um, yeah. So I and I thought that I'd be going to this gaming company and I'd be working and gaming twenty four seven, you know. But it was just that wasn't how it was. All of a sudden, it's a job. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still love gaming anyway. And I, I was able to, later on, find a group of people to play Werewolf with and a group of people to play. Um, we had this awesome Werewolf-Vampire crossover game that was going on where I was storyteller for the werewolves and somebody else was storyteller for the vampires. And then it was set in the same milieu, so we, we, we traded storylines and characters back and forth across the, uh, across the two games. Oh, brilliant. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I also very much enjoyed... Um, the playtesting we did, and of course, Werewolf version one, the playtest was essentially vampires with fur. Um, okay, because, right. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just vampire masquerade with fur. There were disciplines, and you know, it was just the same. It was more of the same. How structured were the were the playtests? I mean, uh, do you have? Like oh tonight we're going to run through combats tonight we're going to try some social interactions or is it is it just let's you know belly up to the table and play and see what comes out of it? Well, the very first play tests were not really play tests. They would be what we would call in the indie gaming uh, circles um, play storming more more than play testing because mm. what it was um, was essentially a lot of flavor and atmosphere and. A character sheet to look at and a story in mind, but it was very freeformy and very sort of open-ended. Those were the very first playtests, so that essentially the designer could get an idea of where they were heading. And then right. later on, um, one of the things Mark likes to talk about um, in all of his design discussions is something he called creative destruction, where you build up something, you you look at it, you evaluate it, you run it a few times, and then you destroy it completely. And then we just sort of say, okay, forget all that. And, and start over. And then we build it up a little bit more. And then sometimes we do another version, another like complete new rebuild. And that's just the way that Mark liked to design. Um, and Sometimes it, I, I believe it did result in better, in better play, and sometimes I think it resulted in a little bit more confusion. But um, and that's why there was a need for heavy development, heavy editing, and and cleanup uh, later on. Right. So you have like a series of progressive like waves of design uh, almost yes. rushing over each other. And, uh, exactly. Does that result in, in, in you know, artifacts from earlier iterations of the game being, being left behind, kind of embedded mm -hmm. in, in the more yes. material? Yes. Yeah. Everyone has been familiar, become familiar with page XX. Um, right. <laughs> that's where all those elements go. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, okay, yeah. Basically, that's exactly, it's very astute that you would pick up on that because it's, that's exactly what happens. And a lot of the criticism people leveled against version two, the world of darkness, has been, well, it's just doesn't it just doesn't hang together. Um, you know, all the scales are different. Um, you know, it's not it's not um, you know all one game. Yeah. And the reason they came out with the next version of the world of darkness is because they wanted to go through 
and do what I call GURPSify it. That is to say, you know, make it a generic, universal World of Darkness role-playing game. Right. Um, and then plug everything into that. And that's fine for people who like, who like consistency. Um, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of consistency myself, but I can understand that there are people out there who want to know, God damn it, like how powerful their werewolf is, you know, how strong it is compared to, you know, a third generation vampire and who would win in a fight or whatever. Yeah. Okay, fine. That's great. Um, that's, that wasn't me. That wasn't what I like to do. And certainly not what any of the designers I knew enjoyed. Uh, so, you know, it's just to each their own. And that, and I think that, you know, the new world of darkness as it were came out and, and it really did appeal to all those folks who were looking for that kind of consistency. There certainly is a degree of, uh, uh, like you say, I, I, it's similar to GURPS, I suppose, where you can look at one book and you can look at another and you can compare, and they are designed to be played within the same world from from the uh, from the outset. Uh, yep. Whereas, yeah, the earlier Old World of Darkness, it kind of you know lumbered along in that direction, but it, uh, but like you say, yeah, it was. Um, uh, not unified at all. Um, you know, for me, that's part of his charm, I think. Yeah, well, I think as the as time went on, the there were two there were sort of two camps of editing and design that sort of started to show themselves as the different games released over time. Um, you have the what I call like the the subjective people like Mark Reinhagen and Andrew Greenberg, who were at that time thinking in terms of this, you know, vampire is a game by itself. Yeah. Werewolf is a game by itself. And when you play werewolf, you're playing werewolf. And if you want vampires in the game, then you have to introduce those characters as in the context of werewolf, not as some sort of generic universal vampire. Right. Um, But as you go into the developers, like, Oh, well, starting with Phil Brucato, going to Jennifer Hartshorn and Ian Lemke, you start looking at, uh, well, and Bill Bridges a little bit, but not, not as much. You look at, you start seeing where they diverge and they're, that whole, well, gosh, we have to make these things fit together. We have to figure out, you know, who Elvis is um, because, <laughs> uh, or who, uh, who Rasputin is. I was just going to say, which clan does Rasputin belong to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rasputin, Rasputin was the big, it was a big deal. Like, who the hell is Rasputin? Like, is he a Nosferatu? Is he, what, is he a Sabbat? You know, what, who, yeah. who was he? Um, and people who need answers to those questions started to become people who were in charge of creating the game. So, then they would say, well, Elvis was a Bonar, you know, kinfolk. Boom. There you go. And forever it shall be. But <laughs> ultimately, uh, you know, that, that, and that's why you saw the third edition come out because those developers and their viewpoints just sort of built on each other. But the yeah. confusion came in the transition because you had games that were developed from a subjective standpoint coming into and trying to be folded into an objective standpoint. Right. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the difference uh, in developers, you know, the effect that it has on the game. And uh, For me, there's almost a, a, not, a, not a, a cutoff, but a, a, a fairly strong transition between the first three, Vampire, Werewolf, and Mage, 
and mm. the last two of the big ones, uh, Wraith and Changeling. And mm. the way I've always, the benchmark I've always looked at it with is what's the difference between the first and second edition of those games like? You know, and, and the difference mm. between Vampire first and second uh, is, you know, moderate to strong. Between Werewolf first and second is quite strong. Between Mage first and second is really strong, I think. Uh, mm. You know, they're, they're almost different game lines. But between Wraith mm. And first and second, and changing first and second, there's not that much difference in in uh, in, in tone and, and play, and it's almost the impression that I got by that time. A lot of these, you know, subjective, non-subjective kinks have been kind of ironed out. That's just a, you know, that's just the kind of impression that I had by the time we right. get that far into the company's life. Right. Well, you look at creators like Jennifer Hartshorn and Ian Lemke. Jennifer was, you know. She's a she's a classically trained editor. She has you know Shakespearean background. She has literature you know English literature background. She also has um, she also came from you know one of her big pastimes in undergraduate school was playing on World of Darkness mushes. So she's like a third or second generation role player who'd already been playing and had been sitting there cutting her teeth on the inconsistencies. You know, right. if I play a uh, Malkavian uh, anti-tribute, can I teach dementation to my ghoul? You know, she would actually be dealing with those questions on a daily basis as a judge of a couple of different games. She was on City of Darkness uh, mush for a while, and she was on a bunch mm -hmm. of different ones. That's where I got to know her. And in fact, that's how, one of the ways she got recruited. I mean, she would have gotten recruited separately uh, anyway, but I also got to know her um, that way. And so when she came in to take over the developing of Wraith, she was a known quantity at that point. But she'd been playing those, these games for a while. So the people who, con who dealt with and wanted consistency um, over the course of time and, and, and wanted more of an objective viewpoint, they started to come in, and that's why you didn't see... They were actually more conservative with the games. You didn't see a big change between first and second edition. Yeah. Um, whereas people like, well, like Phil Brucato took the basic game of Mage that was given to him, and he had to make it work. And so, yeah, that's why Mage Second Edition is really the only. I mean, to a certain extent, as any other game may be playable, I think Mage Second Edition is the only real playable version of Mage. Mage First Edition, you had to just kind of do a lot of hand waving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's the one that hooked me, but I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. But on. I also want to point out that up until Mage, up until the Mage game itself, no one had ever done a metaphysic of the world of darkness, and no one ever, had ever like tried to pull back far enough to get an objective viewpoint on the entire game world universe. Right. Um, you know, Vampire is a personal tale. Werewolf is a, a tribal tale. Um, and so Mage is the first universal tale. It's the first, how do we encompass all this stuff? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you suddenly realize that the werewolves were just one tiny part of a whole. That's why I think another reason why it started, people started to really demand to have that kind of consistency. Yeah, when it becomes possible for them to exist within within a unified world, yeah, I suppose mm -hmm. people are going to mm -hmm. want that. Yeah, exactly. that's right. That's right. Well, actually, speaking of consistency and all that, <clears throat> I definitely want to ask you, Sam, some questions about the Book of Nod because I have to say it's a uh, it's a major turning point 
in Vampire the Masquerade as a setting. And it's a, a book that I'm reading this now in uh, 2010, 2011, and it holds up very well within the meta plot of Vampire the Masquerade. And I'm mm-hmm. also reading this for, for a class right now, Apocalypticism in Film, where I'm going to be discussing uh, the, the apocalyptic elements of Vampire the Masquerade for my final paper. And I've got to say, from a scholarly standpoint, you nailed it, Sam. You actually did a very good job with this, in the, uh, with the biblical writings in it. Oh, great. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you say that. Um, it was something of a goal of mine. But some very brief background on that. Mark Ryan Higgins' father was a Lutheran minister. And when Mark began to put together a vampire, he knew he wanted to put some Judeo-Christian elements into the game. Thus, the story of Cain and Abel. The Book of Nod was a bit of flavor text in the book in the front of Vampire the Masquerade First Edition. There was like a couple of paragraphs there. And that was what I was handed as, okay, this is kind of what you need to do. Just take this and make a book out of it. And um, so it was like a couple of paragraphs, and it re- sort of retold the Cain and Abel story a little bit. And so um, I, uh, I took that element, and you know that's kind of where that whole Luther minister influence, Mark Ryan Higgins' um, acceptance of the spiritual, of the, like, importance of the judeo-christian mythos in modern popular culture um because you realize that until that point the whole you know there was some eastern christianity in tales of vlad tepes and stuff like that but the two the western christian tradition was not put into the vampire myth as firmly as that i mean yeah we had crosses that were presented and, and and made vampires flinch but you know that is i mean i I might point at that moment as being like a a turning point for the addition of the judeo-christian western tradition into the vampire into vampire lore um i could be wrong i'm totally willing to be called out on that at any rate so mark gave this to me and said i want you to you know add that to the you know put this in context in the book of Nod. Um, so I had to come up with a reason why my stuff would be slightly different. And I came up with the backstory of this uh, bloodline uh, of vampires who were able to travel, um, you know, in the daylight without having, without being burned up and um, who were able to move around and use various um, psychometry, like psychometry sort of powers to read areas and get, references from the from time and that sort of thing and um so the backstory of this person who is putting together all of the body of lore that could be found about the book of nod um and that was going to be the whole the whole book um it was conceived first and foremost as an art book and as a prop for a game i mean and that's really what makes it a, a lot of fun because you can hand your players this book and say, okay, so this is what you see. Um, but from a, from a standpoint of, I didn't want it to just be a cheesy prop. I wanted it to be something that had some 
what Joseph Campbell calls mythic resonance. So I had to sort of dip a little deeper than just, oh, let's go and read what the Hebrew Bible says, which I, you know, I did do that. I went and I went back and I tried to look at translations of Aramaic, translations of the Hebrew Bible, and I was able to look at things like Hebrew Midrash um, and other things like that. And I was pointed that direction by my um, now ex-wife, Leanne Hildebrand. Um, she was into women's spirituality in a big way, and she was a women's studies major uh, in, high, in um, college. And she was exposing me to a lot of these things. And so there were all these books around with these kind of things in them. And I started reading them. And um, I read about the Midrash of Lilith, which is Adam's first wife. Yeah. And, you know, who wanted to be on top. Um, and, uh, you know, who, you know, Adam uh, going to God like a tailor and saying, you know, God, this uh, this woman person thing that you got me, it's not quite what I wanted. Can you can you make it a little better or different? And things like that. I mean, those kind of stories, the mid the Jewish uh, folk tales, essentially Midrash. I wanted to put that in there because we'd already opened the door to Judeo-Christian. So it was no problem to put that in there. But I also wanted to think about really, really ancient times and through the books that were lying around my house at that time, I found Inanna um, right. and the, the Sumerian mythos and the, the translations of, of the hymns to Inanna and that cadence of she, was, she called for this, she called for this, she called for that, she, she went forward and then, you know, the she was the the blossoming of the of the night blooming flower she was the the golden sheaf she was you know and all this this repetitive you know slightly repetitive cadence of the sumerian hymns to nana and other things like that and i really just read all that stuff and then i let it steep in the back of my head and um I spent a lot of time because you know, while I was writing the book of Nod, I was also working all day and I was taking care of an infant daughter and I was, you know, basically a very busy person. So I would stay up till very, very late at night and I would enter these weird states of, you know, like, I don't even know. I would look up from time to time and go, did I write that? You know, I can't remember even typing that. Trance states almost. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, so um, I put it all together, um, and I tried to put in the notes for all those things. I wrote all of the words first, all of the, 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 the verses first, and then I went back through and I tried to annotate using, you know, things that would give people jumping off points to, to create stories out of. And I would make references to things like, you know, the the Arines fragments or, you know, and of course we've seen this in other places repeated time and time again, but of course I discovered that was a false, but I'm now starting to wonder whether, you know, I just go on and on and on building in story seeds so that later on people could come back and, you know, make it their own. Yeah. And that's, and that's how I did it. I mean, that's, it was very, it was fairly simple after that putting it all together 
and then handing it over to brilliant developer Andrew Greenberg, who, you know, saw the need for kind of a punk kind of aspect to the book. And so he put the, the, the like, there's a end papers part where the, um, one of the, uh, one of the scions of Delarent, the person who wrote the book, um, it responds to him and, and talks about various things he said. Um, and I thought that was great. And then Michelle Praler took the book and made it awesome, made it beautiful. There are some people who say, well, gosh, that page of the Malkavian text, I could never read it. Well, you know, Michelle made that choice to put black text on black text effectively because she thought it was a, well, first of all, I think she thought it was just a, a, a strange, a very, very strange verse. And it was. It was meant to be kind of bizarre. And uh, she just wanted to make it uh, even stranger by making it very difficult to read. <laughs> the artistic element is very strong in the book. It's, you know, really it really kind of leaps out at you. Yeah. yeah, I was actually reading that, that page on the bus yesterday. And I was specifically thinking, like, oh, I think they did this on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, right. it was definitely done on purpose. Very cool. So, mm-hmm. uh, a full like quarter of the book is uh, discussing Gehenna, like the the apocalypse, mm-hmm. and you you did quite a bit of work with that and really developed mm-hmm. it. Because we look at Vampire the Masquerade first edition, there's only maybe a paragraph or two discussing Gehenna, and that's it. It's mm-hmm. a very very mm-hmm. minor element. Right. So I guess uh, first off, what kind of religious texts did you look at for inspiration, or did you kind of go in there? Uh, a little, a little blind. Well, like I said, I, I did look, I mean, I, I, I have been before that prior to even coming to white wolf for a while, I was, um, I went to a private Christian school for a period and it was a very fundamentalist school. Um, and they taught a lot of the old, uh, King James version, a uh, mm. Southern Baptist style Bible thumping, hellfire and brimstone. brimstone. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Now that stuff is extremely powerful because it plugs into a lot of stuff in our subconscious that we don't really recognize until later, and um, it is. It, it's a very you know, the the. Um, Revelations, the the book of Revelation, the Bible is incredibly. Um, it sounds very frightening. I mean, just the very nature of that is just so bizarre and weird. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to send, you know, the the way that it's been, you know, sort of massaged over the years. It's been it's supposed to send chills down your spine, and um, and it does. You know, uh, it's it's funny that it it comes from a uh, political tract. Written by John, uh, a criticism of uh, government practices. But um, hey, you know I'm a big fan of taking one thing that's used for one thing and then repurposing it to another, and um, and, and that's what a lot of people have done. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that particular practice, but the whole the idea of taking um, a model and uh, using it for something else is is kind of fun, and that's what I did with. Um, Gehenna is I, I took my memories of all the preaching I heard about the book of Revelation, including all the stuff that isn't in the Bible, like talking about um, the tribulations and 
and talking about um, the, all the end time stuff that was made popular by various um, there's a lot of Christian fantasy, Christian adventure books that came out about that period of time. You know, the rapture and I mean, stuff that is just amazing. And it's all come, it all comes completely out of, I mean, it's not in the Bible. So where it came from, I don't know for sure. I think it would require some cultural detective work to really find out where all that stuff came from. But, um, you know, it's it's like there's a couple of verses here and there, and then people take it and run with it. Yeah. Um, so I was steeped in that culture, and then I got better, and then um, <laughs> I went on to, to 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 college, and I was an English major, and I took philosophy 101, and my brain broke open, and um, you know, I. Uh, I was able to uh, then just see the patterns of things. And so late, so when it was time to write the Book of Nod, I wanted to draw upon that sense of foreboding, that sense of these are the end times. I wanted to but, – but you have to think about like what is going to really scare a vampire? Yeah. You know, the time of thin blood uh, is, is one of those things that is – it's like a plague. It's like one of the um, – uh, the um, plagues uh, during Passover. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, that what if we couldn't, you know, what if at some point we're just not going to be able to, to to feed ourselves anymore? Yeah, and it, it strikes at the heart of that that sort of primal need. Then there's also some things where I was able to do some story seed planning, talking about the woman with the the birthmark. The mark. I, yep. Yes, yep. the mark. Yes, all these different things, uh, which. You know, I could just pull out of thin air and put in there and have it mean anything or nothing at all. Well, it's interesting because it, it casts such a long shadow over the game line. You know, for, for a small supplement that came out very early in the game's life, uh, these things ultimately came. I mean, the, the vampire apocalypse is at the end of the Book of Nod ultimately mm-hmm. came to determine the course of the game's metaplot in its entirety, uh, you know, 10, 12, 13 years on. Right, and I think that's really due to the um, that tendency I was talking about earlier, where you know the developers started to really want to have consistency, and um, so when they they started to think about the end of the world, I mean, I, I wasn't part of those those discussions or those ideas mm. uh, when they started to think about the end of the game line, but you know they certainly must have pulled out the book of Nod and said, "All right, so what are we going to do to vampires?" And just, you know, okay, so there's this all this stuff that Sam wrote in the book of Nod. <laughs> Where are we going to put these things? And, sure, uh, sure. You, you look at the, the Gehenna book itself, you can absolutely see, see those thumbprints all over it. You know, the, the last daughter of Eve, the girl with the mark, etc., etc. They're all right in there as, uh, as, as adventures. Right, right. Cool. And, and that's, that's great. And also... I might point out that those things were also used before the whole end times thing started by storytellers who wanted to scare the crap out of people. Yeah. You know, um, is this the last times, you know, that whole big question mark. So yeah. Indeed. Cool. It's actually really interesting that you're bringing up how uh, you wanted to, wanted to make something to scare vampires. And when you look at the apocalypse, uh, for early Christians, they couldn't wait for it to happen. They're going to get to heaven. It was all going to be great. It was going to be, it was going to be a great time. 
But when you look at modern media, you're going to have a lot of these apocalypses which are supposed to scare people. It's these people who are relatively unoppressed having to face uh, a new world order, which they fear and want to fight. Um, Cataclysms and destruction. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's very yeah. interesting that it it kind of mirrors some of the way that uh, the media portrays the the apocalypse nowadays. And one thing you always find in the apocalypse uh, with regard to Christianity is that that kind of Messiah figure. And you kind of you do have this in the Book of Nod in a couple of different mm-hmm. ways. And I just wanted to reflect on that a little bit. You've got okay. the last daughter of Eve, and it specifically states that within her, the fate of all will be decided. Um, mm-hmm. And that's interesting uh, for a, a mortal messiah in some ways. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of nice that it's a female in this case, not the usual male that you find in uh, Judeo-Christianity. Um, right. The other person I wanted to talk about a little bit is Saulot, the uh, the clan founder of, of Clan Salubri. Mm-hmm. And he is cast in a very positive light in this book. But as other people took the character through the course of a Vampire Masquerade, he became more devilish at times. He's got that link to the Bali that he might have created them, the uh, the demonic uh, vampire mm-hmm. bloodline. Um, so I just wanted to know your, your thoughts on that character. Did you really see him as being a vampire messiah, or am I kind of going in the wrong direction? Well, keeping in mind that the Book of Nod is really designed to be uh, sort of a dark mirror that you hold up to your game and say, what do I take from this? What, what do I, where do I put this? Um, that is always the first motivation in the, in the text. You can always put, ascribe most of the decisions I made in the writing to that. Now, having said that, there are certainly mythic resonances there of, of a messiah. Um, and you did pick up on the fact that um, in this game, I mean, in this particular book, the Book of Nod, um, I put Lilith in there, um, another female, mm-hmm. and I wanted to highlight the last daughter of Eve because um, there is there was a need to have some feminine energy balancing all the masculine uh, in in my mind because you know vampires are very they have a very uh, powerful feminine mystique even if they are male and so I wanted to say like okay this is where this comes from. Um, but to, to more fully answer your question, there's another level to this, and there's a game. It's a game design level. Andrew Greenberg, right, right. the developer uh, of Vampire at the time, I think there was a serious back and forth between himself and the designer who originally, the writer who who wrote the Salubri. Now, this is Salubri came out in play, the player's handbook, which, you know, the, the player's guide, uh, the first, which was the first big successful supplement to Vampire. Um, and if you recall, it gives you all these different disciplines and it gave you all these new bloodlines. And um, the, the Ravnos were in there and, you know, and the Salubri were in there. And, the, and really, ultimately, the Salubri were designed to be those, you know, healing kind of characters. But Andrew would not allow that to happen. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of debate about that for the longest time. And what finally ended up happening, and to be 
to be truthful, I do not remember who originally designed or created the idea of the slavery. I might say that was a Steve Brown thing, but I don't know for sure. Um, and maybe somebody else will, will speak up and say, oh, no, no, I know who it was. Um, but I do recall Andrew saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Uh, salubri is um, that's e- that's actually evil, and it's kind of like painting them as the idea of Lucifer being the angel of the dawn, you know, being the mm. the bright angel of morning. Um, uh, uh, Lucifer being the most beautiful of all of uh, uh, of God's angels, and that whole concept of beauty and purity and goodness uh, just doesn't exist for vampires. Uh, Andrew was very much a fan of that idea that there is no such thing as love for vampires that they could never feel love as far as they're concerned he was concerned and um, that they could never be good um, and so that's why you see a lot of the references to the Bali and this whole secret subplot of the salubri are really evil that's really interesting mm-hmm. oh, okay I can see the benefits of both sides of it. You know, there's a certain gothic romanticism in having uh, having the doomed love of uh, of the undead. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, yeah, I can I can also see the benefit of these creatures are ultimately monsters. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, well, and lo- love is really about not being selfish. But the vamp- vampire is one of the most selfish creatures in the universe, as far as you know, the way that they're that they're portrayed. Yeah. So. Um, Great. Well, you pretty much just covered every single question I had on uh, the Book of God, so <laughs> outstanding job. Thank you. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Uh, Mark, do you have any more questions on the Book of God, or should we move on to uh, some other books? Just one question. I wondered if you'd um, and the Book of Nod was, you know, it really did set a precedent. Uh, and there's any any number of little of those those little kind of game supplements. Um, I dug all mine out today. Actually, there's you know a good eight or nine of the, of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically, I was wondering about: did you ever have much uh, input into, or did you get a chance to look at specifically Revelations of the Dark Mother or the Erceus fragments? I think the Erceus fragments was like the medieval mm-hmm. version of mm-hmm. the Book of Nod, and Revelation of the Dark Mother was the uh, the, the Lilith-centric um, version mm-hmm. of the same. Mm-hmm. The um, the fragments book was actually I created the name for that. Because I just sort of threw that in there as an aside. So I planted that seed, and later on it was brought out and used. Um, As far as did I have anything to do with them? No, I didn't. But Phil Bricado told me that, you know, he really, you know, he studied the Book of Nod, and he really tried to sort of, you know, emulate the kind of process that I went through to do the same thing with that, that sort of... Lilith focused book. Plus, yeah. you know, one, another reason why those books are so plentiful is because they're cheap to produce as far as from a capital standpoint, from like a business standpoint, very inexpensive to produce. And they were just tremendous sellers because anytime you have a book that can be purchased by both players and storytellers, yeah. it's a big, it's an automatic win. You yeah. know, there's many more players than there are storytellers. And there's a lot of, and anytime you can also simultaneously appeal to the LARP crowd, yes, yeah, 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 it's going to work. It's going to, it's going to generate some sales. I'd love to see the sales numbers one day of, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know if they've even been kept over the course of time, but I'd love to see how Book of Nod did over the course of time and 
and also how these little books did. But you also notice the, um, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the indie game uh, community at all, but they use almost the same form factor for a lot of right. their books. <laughs> yeah. No, they are. They're about the same size. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's true. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, I had um, I had a number of other questions, but they, they also relate to uh, your work on the various other worlds uh, of Darkness and White Wolf game lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mike, I d- don't know if you were if you were still wanted to carry on with your uh, your ap- apocalyptic uh, line of questions there, Mike, or were you pretty much done with that? No, as I said, uh, Sam, you covered pretty much everything. The, the last thing I want to bring up about the Book of Nod is um, I, it appeals to even more than just role players. I gave it to my girlfriend just to read, and she, mm-hmm. she loved it. She just sat down, read through the entire thing in one sitting. So I think yeah. it really speaks to it. I was able to perform. Um to actually like read it to a crowd before it came out at Aresia, which is a convention in Boston, and um, had a great time, you know, reading it for them. And it, it, I, like I said, I, I still occasionally just look at it and go, did I really write that? Because <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> some of the stuff that comes up. Hmm. Um, and I just, I just sort of go, well, you know. And also, you have to you have to give Andrew Greenberg some credit too, because ultimately he went through everything, and he's the devel- that's what developers do. They take what the writers give them, and they put it in, and they go through everything line by line, and make sure it all hangs together. So, you know, uh, I I am uh, more than happy to take credit for it, the stuff that I that I did, and um, I also wanted to finish by saying that um, I've actually had people contact me. Uh, privately, and ask me who told me these secrets. Uh, <laughs> they they claim to be uh, part of the Church of Nod, and um, they're serious. They they actually are spiritual. They they found some sort of spiritual connection with the words or with the Book of Nod or with vampires, and they've written me and said, you know who told you these secrets really? And I, and I say, I'm sorry, I made it up. Yes. Okay. I understand you have to say that. <laughs> Brilliant. But oh, really? Geez. Did you really talk to an older vampire? I said, no, I really did not. I really created this full whole cloth. I mean, I guess you might say, well, Sam, when you were passing out like that from exhaustion, you probably were yeah. in touch with some higher power, but I, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Of course, of course, you would say that, though, wouldn't you? You know, what I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Jeez, Great. Sam, it sounds like you uh, made another Church of Scientology here. Yeah, well, um, maybe I do need to check that off my list. <laughs> Things to do before I die. Excellent. Well, in addition to um, work on Vampire the Masquerade, uh, you've worked on well all the other main uh, Old World of Darkness lines. Mm-hmm. Um, Werewolf, uh, you said you, you know you had your your, your werewolf, great werewolf crossover game. Um, mm-hmm. Did you? F- I mean, okay, werewolf is it's called werewolf the apocalypse. Did you find mm-hmm. that your work on the book of Nod was particularly informative or helpful in getting into the apocalyptic mindset for the werewolf game? Yeah, you know what I did with that is I read um, I read a lot of the accounts of the first um, the first encounters with uh, the Europeans made with uh, the with Native Americans. Mm. I read a lot of Native American myth. I had a lot of friends who were who were into Native American myth. 
but I also had a grounding in spirituality and, and nature or spirituality and um, I had my own personal grounding in knowing people who were pagans and witches and druids and you know people in real life who uh, who are who believe this this is their religion and so um, this is their spiritual practice so I was able to come at it from that perspective as well and Mark did tell me when, at one point he said look you know without you in this game without you in the game design team this game would not have been as spiritual as it was because it was just a game a splatterpunk kind of you know, gore fest up until yeah, that. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting because I've always found as a, you know, in the werewolf games that I ran, sure we enjoy ripping the heads off black spiral dancers and smashing factories and stuff, but this the spiritual tribal element ultimately mm-hmm. is the thing the thing that makes the game endure and and that's what keeps that was what kept us coming back to it. Um, so if that mm-hmm. was down to your input, then yeah, hats off because you really nailed that one too. Yeah, like the Incarna, for example, the to- the the pack totems and such. There was just going to be a a trait called pack totem before that. Okay. And I said, no, no, no. We need to bring out the pack totems. We need to make them. And we actually, uh, it's funny how things get added to games because of uh, a quirk of the printing industry. I don't know if you've ever heard of signatures as a concept in printing, but mm-hmm. basically, yep. there you have to come up with. Um, a number divisible by 16 or 8 right, um, yeah. to, for numbers of pages. Um, and that's just because that's how things are printed. So frequently enough, what would happen is we get to the end of a layout, a layout on the book, and we would need, you know, five more pages or, you know, three more pages or whatever. Um, and we couldn't cut anything. So... We would, and so that, that's what happened with Werewolf First Edition, actually. We got to the end of the book, and there were, I think, five or six pages that needed to be filled. And you're not going to put five or six pages of notes on the back. <laughs> <laughs> People would not like that at all. So um, I stayed up all night writing the, the pack totems that night, and I presented it to Mark as both a problem and a solution. You know, Mark, problem. We need five more pages. Solution. Here they are. Here's the stuff that I've written. <laughs> and um, and so was able to put that in at the last minute. And then Player's Handbook, uh, the, Player's, the Player's Guide for Werewolf came out. And I got to put in the clave dueling stuff. And uh, yes, very a, cool. lot of the, a lot of the, the really fun maneuvers and things that you, you know, that added to the game and expanded it out a little bit. Was the fetish system another one of those, or was that already uh, the, done? The what? Already? Fetish system? Yeah, the fetish yeah. system, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, cool. That was another okay. one of mine, the fe- putting together fetishes and trying to you know, make a sense out of them. Now, you mentioned the Incarna. I, I saw on your, on your website on the Book of the Worm um, that you wrote up the Melgen Incarna. I did, yes. So what, what was the inspiration for those, um, those, those wonderful people? Well, um... Just the uh, the shadow side of a lot of different things. Um, trying to to take various concepts of corruption and uh, and make them more real. Um, so, uh, and and that's really that's really the long and short of it. Okay, well, nice and simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I also noticed that um, you mentioned that you created the Goral and the Ratkin. I did. Um, 
were you asked to create those those specifically? So you know, we need uh, weird no. bears and weird rats, or did you just have free reign to devise any any kind of shifter you wanted? Well, yeah, Bill was putting together like the book, uh, well, the player's guide, and there was a lot of questions as to what would be put in as a, as a shifter, and um, I really, really, really wanted there to be weird bears, and I. Um, had been playing werewolf in my for during that time, and my pack had gone to a realm where, like a like a far realm, um, in the Umbra, where um, there were a bunch of were rat people, ratkin people, and it was a sort of a film noir kind of realm where. The rats were actually gangsters, and they wore bowler hats. I mean, you know, the fedoras and <laughs> trench coats, and they had Tommy guns, and uh, oh, you know, it was a lot of fun. Brilliant. Rat gangsters, yes. And uh, so it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. Um, and so I thought, well, and also I had been writing the stuff for the Bonars, and mm. so um, and Bonars and rats are you know heavily tied back together. Yeah. So I I. I went ahead and wrote up the stuff for the were rats, and I wrote up the stuff for the were bears because I just love bears in general, um, and I wanted the bears to be kind of like the older brother of the werewolves, you know, the kind of right. the older, wiser, but now, you know, a little bit less powerful because they they sort of sat things out a bit. Um, yeah. And the greatest thing was that I got to play a were bear once in a LARP. Um, I walked into a game that oh, cool. was crazy. Werewolves chasing vampires through the halls, and it was just ridiculous. And um, I was able to take to, be, to to become like the storytellers. Were like, we need your help. We need you to help us because the were- <laughs> werewolves are going crazy. We don't know what to do, but we don't know how to fix them. We just introduced them to the game, and we thought they would be okay. But they're killing vampires left and right. I'm like, okay. So I. I said, can I have any character I want? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, I'm going to play an elder girl. And they said, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> and what we did is uh, I took them and I took them out to the beach. It was a, it was a con at a beach. Yeah, I had such a terrible life. And um, <laughs> it was a wonderful, there's this wonderful beach, white sand beach, and this beautiful full moon over over the whole convention. Oh, perfect. And um, I gathered all the werewolves together and I showed them, you know, I did the whole dominance thing with every single one of them showing them, no, I really am a girl elder and I can put you down. Um, and I, once I did that, I got all the werewolves together. We created a, we did a, a rite of Karen creation in the middle oh, cool. of the game. And we created a Karen on the beach. Um, and there was this That's guy funny. who was so into it that he was digging a hole and he made all these <laughs> These, he, he went up and down the beach with with driftwood and shells and made this complicated design, a magic circle, and oh man, it was it was wonderful. And That's of course, fantastic. the vampires were much happier when they were not having to dodge crazy girls trying to kill them. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, they could get on to the business of sticking knives in each other's backs. Yeah, yeah good yeah. sorted vampire stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. I also n- note that you um, you wrote the Death Takes Last story as well. 
Death takes uh, life. Yes. Yeah, that was fantastic. He, that character, I, I was so inspired by that. Used him as a long-running NPC in one of my games. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Uh, very cool. And also the renown system. Um, mm-hmm. That you you sorted out the second edition version of that. I understand. That's right. Mm, which is yeah, yeah. A huge impro- a huge improvement over the one in the first edition book. <laughs> yeah, and I got be, to influence the um, the stuff with Werewolf the, with the uh, Apocalypse LARP as well. Uh, through that renowned system, so that was that was a lot of fun too, and it worked really well um, once it was introduced to the werewolf game that I was part of. Cool, cool. Um, now you've already, you, before we came on air, you mentioned that you didn't, in fact, write the rap on the back cover of the Bone Noir's book. Um, no, so I didn't. We'll, we'll just gloss over that and move swiftly along. <laughs> I mean, okay, it could be said that I wrote the first draft of it, but the I wrote I, I sort of started out in a general zone. And then Andrew Greenberg stopped me, and he said, no, <laughs> it's got to scan, and it's not scanning. <laughs> and I said, okay, and he said, I'm taking this away from you now. <laughs> and Andrew and Josh Timbrook and a couple of other people in the office um, got together, and they they've actually made it scan and made it work. Uh-huh. So to a certain extent, it's still awful, um, but... And I will. I'll, I'll just go ahead and take responsibility for it, because I oh, wanted fun. to have a rap. I, I mean, it was my idea to have a rap on the back cover. Right. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, it's settled. <laughs> yep. Um, now, before I before I completely geek out about Mage, I thought it was important to uh, to talk about uh, Wraith for a little bit because you did a lot of work on the uh, the early stuff on Wraith. Um, mm-hmm. Well, the the core book itself, uh, which I still think is a it's a groundbreaking. Uh, release you know not just in white wolf's game line but in in mm-hmm. gaming in general simply because of well the themes and the approach that it takes to playing a character in the shadow and what have you mm-hmm. um but also i noticed that you were working on face of death the uh the art prose poetry book along with uh, mark reinhagen mm-hmm. yes uh, and what was your contribution on that one were you co-writing it together or was it from a concept by him or how did that pan out I'm trying to remember that. Um, that was like one of the last things we did with Wraith. It was one of the last things I did for the company. But I think that uh, it was uh, originally thought of as, you know, here's an art book and it's going to be pretty and we can sell this um, alongside of Wraith or before Wraith comes out because it's a lot easier to put together an art book with the covers of all the books that you've already decided you're going to make um, as part of it. Um mm. It's very much easier to do that, and then and have something pretty to show people. Um, having said that, I think the parts about that book were the stuff that I wrote, which dovetails with my novel um, uh, "Sins of the Fathers," which is a Sins novel Father, that yeah. I wrote on yeah. uh, on contract. Uh, "Sins of the Father," yeah, I, and I think that was my contribution to that. Okay, and what was Wraith like to to work on as a as a game line in general? Um, and we, I ran a short Wraith Chronicle that was just, it was really really miserable to tell you the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. we you know we enjoyed it as as, as gamers, but mm-hmm. oh my God, it's a dark game. Um, mm-hmm. Did you find that uh, a challenge as a designer when you were working on it that you had to get in some some pretty dark places there, or did it you know were you able to distance yourself from that element of the work? Oh yeah, working on Wraith was like mainlining Drano. <laughs> um, wow! It was awful. It was probably the one of the worst experiences of my life. And um, you know, in terms wow. of just dredging up all of that, living it with the, living it on a day to day basis, mm. um, 
the whole idea behind Wraith came out of a game that Mark freeformed for some people at one point in time, um, where he uh, he um, wanted to do a story where you start out in hell, and your characters are all in hell, and you have to deal with your sins and and going through all this. It was just very much of a psychodrama kind of thing. And that particular game, I think he called it Inferno, never got made because it was... I mean, he claimed later on that it was cursed. Um, mm-hmm. And that it would never be made. And yet, when he brought up the Inferno aspects of Wraith, um, that he wanted it to be extremely dark. He wanted it to be, you know, dark, 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 with more dark and dark on top of dark. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he uh, he kind of set that in motion, and then he had to go. I mean, he 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 did a lot of work on initial work on Wraith, and then he had to to do other things. The vampire TV show was coming out, right? So that he was going to he went to Los Angeles to deal with that. He also had an extended tour in in Brazil with all the Brazilian gamers down there. Um, so it was kind of like, okay, Sam. And Jennifer, cope with it. Deal. Here. Boom. Um, we were sick all the time. We were uh, depressed. Um, we were staying up all night a lot. We were walking endlessly through graveyards. We were, I mean, we were almost like living a Morrissey album. It was, <laughs> it was terrible. Um, and, you know, it didn't help that I was going through a divorce at that time, and it didn't help that I mean, just there's all this awful stuff that happened. So it was um, a terrible time, and yet, you know, I am proud of what we did. Uh, I I think of Wraith as my deformed little half-born child that I still love because he's my child, you know, and. Yeah. I, I love him anyway, and I I will claim him, and I will defend him from anyone. But um, yeah, I I have never played more than one like demo version of Wraith, like a, a one on one session of Wraith with anybody. Yeah. Um, and there are people who come up to me and say, "I love Wraith. It's my favorite game. Um, I've 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 played it now for five years." And I have to control myself to keep from taking a step back from them, um, <laughs> because I was one of those. Yeah, I mean, I've had people come up to me and say that, and tell me that, and that they love it, and I, I am very happy that they get something out of it, and I'm very happy that it's still out there and still going for a lot of people. Um, and I think that Richard Dansky did an incredible job with it after I left yes. the company. Yeah, he we had did. him on the sh- had him on the show a few months back, and mm-hmm. yeah, he was mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was very interesting. He, yeah. He's an awesome fellow, and I really, I, I was, I couldn't have been happier that he was made the developer um, after a while. So, and he, because he really gets horror, and that's what yeah. Wraith is. I mean, it's terror, it's horror. But having said that, you know, if you look at the indie gaming circles these days, there are games like Don't Rest Your Head and Dread, um, Dread. yeah, that are like, you might as well just sort of, I mean, you have to really put, turn the, card over and say, yeah, look, Wraith is right there on the back. Um, The thing of it is, and also, like, I've had people tell me, um, 
the designer of Polaris tell me that he took a lot of that from Wraith. So, mm. and I'm really happy that the game went on and influenced a lot of people. Well, um, people are still the people are still hugely passionate about it when you run into Wraith fans on the <laughs> online, okay. and, uh, and a lot of people will describe it as the best game that they can't play. And absolutely, well, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned the, the Sins of the Father novel, and I saw that you were writing that around about the same time as working on Necropolis Atlanta. Um, yes. And they, 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 did that overlap much? Or, uh, yes, actually, uh, it did, yeah. And you mentioned in Necropolis Atlanta, you worked on the vampires that are at the, at the back of the book. I did. I did. Um, and those vampires actually... Um, I, I created a... Um, a secondary chronicle for in the same realm as the one I talked to you about earlier, the werewolf vampire game that I, I, I ran with another fellow. Um, and uh, I had three wonderful women uh, come to play at my house every, every week for a short period of time. And they were my vampire graces. They were awesome. And um, I love gaming with women, period, in general. But... Um, they had so much fun with me, pushing me to be as, well, gosh, I mean, it was just such a lot of levels of intrigue in that game. Um, and I created the, um, the, court, the, the Vampire Court of Atlanta out of mm -hmm. that, for that particular game. So a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that you see in my books are taken directly from <laughs> the games that I was running at the time. Well, that's what I wondered when I was looking over them. I thought these, these, yeah, this feels very true to life, very, uh, very from the table kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much yeah. so. One last question on Wraith, uh, the player's kit. Mm -hmm. uh, whose idea was the death certificate? Oh, I that's Richard that. Thomas. Yeah, yeah that's oh, Richard that's, Thomas. That's yes, <laughs> Richard Thomas. A lot of the things, a lot of the little touches in in the books you will find Richard Thomas is behind them the werewolf tattoos for example the werewolf glyphs oh, cool. those are all Richard Thomas he actually strapped a bunch of sharpies to his hand and he oh, would wow. stand in front of a he would stand in front of a, 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 a can, like a pad of paper and he would make little swooshes and swashes to see if if you had giant claws could you really draw these glyphs Oh, cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's just an awesome guy. He was an incredible art director, uh, but he was also a great artist in, in and of himself. Uh, great. Well, when I gave those death certificates to my players, it really, really upset them, So, uh, which is what you want, of course. It's <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> ideal. Very cool. Okay, cool. Hey, I've got a quick question on Wraith, um, mm -hmm. especially the development of the ferrymen, because those guys always really struck me since they they have that reaper visage. But they're almost mm -hmm. one of the more benevolent forces in the Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. So where exactly did that whole idea come from? Well, basically, once you start dealing with the concept of death, you have to, you have to sort of approach the traditional figures of death um, in, in uh, myth and legend. And so we had to come up with a reason why, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we had to, we had to address that figure uh, mythically. Um, and instead of there being one ferryman, we decided that, you know, the, the, Karen was just the first one. And ultimately, I think that that, uh, harkens back to really Mark saying, I want them to be badass. I want them to be awesome. All right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes that's how it is, you know, sometimes, 
we get this image in our heads and we want this thing to be this way. And so I, I really do think that the, um, the ferryman being a figure on a motorcycle or a figure, you know, I think there is a, a ferryman on a motorcycle in one of the stories with a, a scythe or a skid or however you want to say it, uh, on his back and, nice. um, you know, driving down the road. Yeah, um, and of course the mask of Caron, the whole, that thing that's on the cover of Wraith, uh, second edition, well, and the, and the first edition, the, 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 um, material artwork. It's a thing that, um, Henry Higginbotham did awesome artist, incredible artist. He did a lot of stuff for us over the course of time, but he does, he takes found items and found, found like pieces and parts and puts them all together and makes these beautiful pieces of, of art. Oh, wow. Um, the three dimensional art. And so that's all those chains and all those, that was the mask of Carol. You know, that was the, it, the, the, the first edition one glows in the dark too. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep. it does. Yep. Uh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I had another question, actually, leading off from that, because uh, you mentioned Charon, and this question comes from Vergast. Was uh, huh? was Charon's return uh, always planned, or is that just a story seed that, that you put into Wraith First Edition, and then Richard Dansky decided to run with it? Exactly that. Exactly that. Right. Story seeds that were planted, because see, even then, we were still leaving objective, you know, subjective story seeds in the game to make it so that you could, if you wanted to, as a storyteller, decide, you know, to hint at Karen's return, or to have someone show up and say they're Karen, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of thing. It's a story aspect um, that that's put there for you to use. Cool, excellent. Um, okay, uh, Mage the Ascension, um, which is regular listeners know. I just I can't shut up about. Um, I noticed that you worked uh, on the. Uh, in the Book of Shadows on the uh, uh, Sertaman or Kertaman. I've never known how to pronounce yeah, that. Yeah, Kertaman, yes. Mm-hmm. Kertaman. Um, now, we still use that in our game today. Uh, awesome. It's a system that you come up with, with, with for that. Um, was this something that, uh, that saw much playtesting? Did this come out of your own games? or was it Because we find it works really well at the tabletop. Or was it just a little, mm-hmm. a little kind of nugget that you dropped in there you know, to, to fill up five pages? Or uh, how did that come about? No, actually, it was... Um, I, See, it was very important to me that Mage never leave too far behind its Ars Magica roots. Exactly. And yeah. so I wanted to make sure that, I mean, there was a big, in Ars Magica, it was a big deal. Kertaman was like the thing that made the Order of Hermes work because before that, there were just wizards blasting each other when they really got pissed off. So yeah. Kertaman was something that was allowed, enabled wizards to have a conflict without actually killing each other. Um, which meant there were a lot more wizards around. And so uh, I wanted, I didn't want that to be completely lost. I think I do say something in the beginning of that write-up about the fact that, you know, different, different um, traditions have different forms of dueling and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but this was something that the Order of Hermes put forward that everyone sort of adopted over the course of time. And um, it... I did playtest it quite consistently at the table because I wanted it to be something that I, I knew that Phil would be looking at it and that Bill uh, Bill Bridges would be looking at it, and I wanted to make sure it would work before I even showed it to them. Yeah, 
cool. Well, it's one of the things that has stood the test of time in the, 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 the you know, the Mage the Awakening, the reimagined version of the game. Uh, it's still in there. It's, I don't think it's called Katam. It's called, it's called Dual Arcane now, I think. But that's, okay, okay. Yeah, the, the concept has, has remained part of the game ever since. Yeah. Uh, that's very cool. Um, also, the Council of the Nine. Um, I saw that you'd, uh, it, you know, done the initial groundwork on them. Uh, and they, of course, became a massive part of uh, of the Mage metaplot as the game progressed throughout its life. Was it your intention to to see them, you know, become so interwoven with Mage Canon, or did you imagine them more as nebulous background figures? Well, you know, um, once again, that was part. Of, I think a lot of that was part of the flavor text and a lot of the um, right. explanatory text over the course of time. So yeah, it those things were just thrown out there, and I feel very um, fortunate that people later on chose to, to take them and go with them um, instead of just ignoring them and going by them. Um, so I'm glad that they did. Um, you know, part of the way that White Wolf works is, uh, worked back then especially, was that everything was work for hire. So mm. if I came up with an idea and I, I signed a contract that was work for hire, that idea was White Wolf's idea. After yeah. that, I mean, that that whole concept. So they, so they were very shrewd about building on the intellectual property they already had, um, in their coffers, as it were. Um, yeah. So they they did that, and they didn't have to pay another person anything for that. You know, they could have come out with a uh, complete source book about. In fact, they did several times about the stuff that I just sort of tossed off in various parts of the uh, of the story, and and. You know, it was taken by extremely good writers and, and the developer at the time and made into a you know, authentic, awesome, 100% good book. Cool, cool. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to mention uh, about Mage is the tarot deck, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, probably ranks up there as one of my favorite Mage I say supplements or props. It's such a mm-hmm. you know luscious, gorgeous design, and uh, you're usable in game as well. Um, how much of a hand did you have in that? Because I know you you were involved in that to one degree or another. Well, yeah, I was a tarot reader in college a lot. Oh right, um, okay. And um, I had my own deck, and I did a lot of readings for friends, and you know I still can do those readings. I actually did some for a relay for life cancer benefit a little while ago. Um, but I only do them for, I mean, I, I, when I do them now, I tell them, tell people that, uh, this is just for, uh, amusement. And, and if it does speak to you, that is because it's, it's something that your brain is picking up on. At any rate, uh, I, I love the idea of the tarot cards, but I, I cannot claim any part of that. That, that is probably all Richard, Richard Thomas is doing. Um, oh, okay. And how beautiful it was and, and how, he took his catalog of artists and made it happen. Okay, fantastic. Um, now, finally, um, Changeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of cards, you mentioned on your website that you couldn't talk Mark out of the cantrip cards, yeah. <laughs> which I, I I sort of had a love hate relationship with those things. You know, I was really happily really? Collect, collecting them when when they came out, and then I thought, yeah, I don't really want to have to actually have to actually have to use these at the table. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, really wish we had, um, but and, and uh, if you look at the second edition, of course, it doesn't exist in second edition. The cards don't of Changeling, but uh, yeah, the cards, please no. Oh no, uh, it was totally tacked on, and um, it was done. It was brought in at the very last part of the process, right? Um, and tacked on at the end, and it was due to 
just this need for cards, this marketing need for cards, and I just sort of couldn't... post post Magic the Gathering sort of. Yes, thing. exactly. I yeah, want yeah. my cards, yep. darn it. it yeah. is what Mark said. So yeah, um, and that's okay because uh, it did. You could completely ignore them as well. Um, yeah, exactly. If you yeah. if you wanted to. I've got eight unopened boosters downstairs, so I'm going to wait another 50 years and then retire. I'm going to sell them and retire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. now, you've also said that, that Changeling was your favorite game to design. Um, was. Why was that? Because, well, first of all, after Wraith, anything could be... <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like going out... You can only go up from there, really, can't you? Yeah, banging your head against the wall for a while and then going and sleeping on a feather bed. It's going to yeah. feel really good. Um, it's like I feel about camping when you come home and you take a hot shower. Um, I, that's the best shower ever. No, really, with um, with Changeling, I, I enjoyed it because it is a love letter to geeks, nerds, misfits, people like me. Right, right. That's what it is. And, there, you know... We couldn't. I don't think we actually came out and said that in so many words because it's not really a heavy marketing uh, push to simultaneously sort of insult people while you're trying to get them to play your game. Yeah. But um, uh, that's what it was. It was purely. It was. It was completely a love letter to the dreamers and the people who never felt like they felt they fit in. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Now, Sam. Uh... Was Changeling the Dreaming originally designed for the World of Darkness, or was it supposed to be a standalone game? I heard someone mention this at a uh, at a Vampire the Eternal Struggle tournament, and I wasn't sure what to make of it. Well, if you look at the back of Vampire the Masquerade First Edition, it says, Coming soon, Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, Fairy, and Ghost. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that right there proves that in that in what ninety one, uh, the changeling was going to happen. Um, fairies were a part of Ars Magica from the very first days of the design of the game. Um, in fact, in Ars Magica, there's the church, there's fairies, and there's wizardry, and those are the three big powers in the world. But you know, beside that. Um, it was going to be part of the World of Darkness from the beginning. And in fact, you see the Chiasid bloodline that is fairy-based. You see yeah. the, the, the fairy aspects of the Fianna. You see the fairy aspects, the fairies in the ver- involved with the Verbena. Or, you know, and, and so there's going to be fairy in there somewhere. And um, really... Uh, yeah, it, it was originally designed for that purpose, for the World of Darkness. Now, a lot of people think that it's not; it doesn't hang together with the other games because uh, Fairy just blithely doesn't even... You know, I was talking about that whole subjective-objective thing. Fairies just sort of... They have their own universe, and they invite you to it. Yeah. Um, so I can see why somebody might think that it was a... Um, it was a standalone game, because... You know, we all have our own, here in in the Changeling worldview, we all have our thing that's happening, and we draw you into it, um, which was a way to handle the consistency problem. 
because we can say, you know, well, um, all this other stuff is going on, all this fairy stuff is going on outside of the uh, outside of the knowledge of the vampires and outside of the knowledge of the werewolves and outside of the knowledge of the, the mages because they can't even see it or interact with it. You know, it's another layer of reality. Um, and at that point in time, there was a secret cabal of artists, designers, and developers in and amongst White Wolf called the World of Mostly Dimness Cabal. <laughs> and we wanted to put some hope back into the game. We wanted to inject hope and positivity into the game somehow, and, you know, into the world of darkness as a whole. Because it was so unrelentingly dark after Wraith that there had to be some balancing. Uh, and that's what Changeling did. So if you think of Changeling as the, the light to Wraith's shadow, yeah. then it's a perfect, you, you get an idea right away that, that, oh, of what, what it's all about and why it does fit in the world of darkness. Having said that, I think fairies are scary as hell. I mean, uh, they're some of the most fiendish and because they're so they're all at once familiar and mysterious and completely unpredictable yeah yep and that's True. definitely covered in the uh the new changeling the lost game they they went for that aspect mm-hmm. and it's very mm-hmm. cool for that sam you've been writing and podcasting for a little while now uh could you talk about the series of stories that you've been producing the first novel was Heart of the Hunter, and that's available for free as an audiobook at heartofthehunter.com. Um, that's the first draft and in audiobook form, so you can listen to it. It's not it's not like you, you should not expect Hollywood level sound editing, but um, it is out there for you to listen to and enjoy for free. And then the next uh, book will be Soul of the Sorcerer, which picks up the story shortly after it left off, and um, it's. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really enjoying this uh, this process of having, um, you know, having a story, writing it, and podcasting. And I'll be beginning podcasting of Soul of the Sorcerer hopefully before the end of the year. Are they fantasy novels or? They are. They're cool. set in my own personal world that I've been developing since I was eight. And um, very cool. Yeah. So it's a it's it's it is a bit of a tongue in cheek sort of thing. I think Stephen Brust. You know, I use a lot of real-world, uh, modern-day accents to denote various personality types, and I, I'm not at all ashamed of uh, of doing so. Um, the same the same kind of thing Robert Asprin does in his mything uh, his myth adventures books, and um, it's not meant to be that level of funny and crazy, but uh, you know, somewhere between Stephen Brust and and um, and Robert Asprin, I'm I'm sort of right there. And that sounds fun. And are you doing yeah. any game design work these days, or is it is novel writing keeping you uh, a slave to the keyboard? Well, actually, I I am doing. Um, I'm actually adapting LARP rules for uh, Second Life, which is a um, oh, so yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, interesting. virtual interesting. world uh, platform. I'm going to be testing a new set of um, LARP technology for Second Life using an upcoming charity event. Uh, as of springboard. So hopefully if I can get that working, um, we can start having virtual LARPs in second life for people. And, um, it'll be a thing where for free, you can sign up and you can come in in costume. And if you can't get to a LARP in real life, you can get to a LARP in second life. 
That's pretty neat. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. So, Sam, it's uh, it's getting kind of late, and mm-hmm. uh, I've got one last question for you okay. before we head out. If you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? Uh, probably a home media server. <laughs> home media server? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd be there. I would give everyone, you know, inspiration and, and entertainment and fun and, you know, uh, be there all the time. Yeah. That's probably that, – that's the first thing that came to my head. Cool. Uh, I have one question as well. Um, uh, seems huh? Mike just stole my question. Ah, <laughs> damn. That's all right. We ask every guest that one, so but he got there first. Um, I also wanted to see yeah, the other. Has anybody else uh, been a home media server? Uh, no, Eddie. Eddie. Uh, Eddie Webb said he was going to be an iPod, but that's not a home. That's not a home. Okay. Okay. If if White Wolf asked you back, uh, you know, with a blank check um, and a free reign, what what dream supplement for any one game uh, would you like to write? What I would do is I would do the the project that me and Josh Tembrook and Chris McDonough and a bunch of other people really, 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 really wanted to do, which was essentially a fantasy world of darkness game. Now I know that a lot of people say, "Oh, Exalted is that," but no, Exalted is a, more of an anime, you know, more of a you know that sort of uh, anime-ish sort of world, and this was. This was more of a dark, like it was. It was more of a Warhammer fantasy role play right, okay. take gotcha, on gotcha. fantasy. We did a, we had a, we had a proposal we put together, and we, um, we said, okay, look, medieval Europe has been invaded by hell. Oh, cool! Like Satan has found, has broken the bonds of the seals that keeps him from where he is, and he's. Put these um, in the much the way the Romans did. He's put these dark roads everywhere throughout Europe, and there are these legions of hell beasts and demons that are patrolling everything, and everything is tainted with hell. And you play uh, heroes who are who have elemental light inside of them, and you're bringing hope. That you're you're actually like when you go to a village and you do something with those villagers, they are freed from their taint for a period. Oh, wow, cool. Um, and so heard- the, real, the really cool part was, and I have to just say that, the really cool part was is that there was this light um, characteristic that everyone could donate points of light to one person to get them to have a, an extraordinary success on uh, one particular activity or action. So literally all these people could work together to push one person over the top so that at the dramatically appropriate moment they could do something heroic and sacrifice themselves. Oh, excellent. So proper heroic fantasy in a world of darkness. Well, yeah, really, really um, heroic fantasy, but also but heroic fantasy with a very dark edge yeah. and sort of a, sort of a really um, hopeful, you know, it's this whole, you know, striving against the darkness kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, uh, excellent. I'd love that. That'd be a lot of fun. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Wow. All right, outstanding. Well, Sam, thank you very much for this mm-hmm. great interview. Uh, I know it ran a little long, thank you. but really enjoyable. Yeah. I don't think any of the listeners will be complaining about that. So okay. thank you very much, and we, we appreciate it. Well, thanks for having yeah, me thanks, on. Thanks for joining us. No, that was okay. a, uh, it was a blast from start to finish. Thank you very much for that. All right, thank you. Thank you.